we're going to something tomorrow night. I'm not telling you what it is. Come in fitness clothes and I'll meet you on Bondi Beach at 7 or 8 p.m. He took me to something called No Lights, No Lycra. It was a rave in the Bondi Pavilion at 8 p.m., completely sober, in the dark. So you imagine 200 people going into a dark room to the point they even covered the fire exit signs. And for one hour, you just danced and no one can see you. It was the weirdest, craziest, sweatiest, and just the most bizarre night of my life. James Smith, thank you very much for coming down. I know it's been a very long journey for you today. You've literally walked out of your apartment, come down 30 floors, and then just walked in this apartment. I've been watching your YouTube stuff, and I've seen like a bit of your setup. And when we moved into our apartments, I was like, we can't be too far away from him. And I just didn't realize I was 20 floors above. <laughs> it's mad. For people who are watching this... We haven't actually met each other at all, especially when we're in the UK. The first time we met was literally a week ago in a random changing room. And it's weird because we've both, we're both in the same industry. We're both from the UK, but we never really ever crossed paths. Yeah, so I'd, I'd seen your stuff kind of before. We're weird in the fitness industry. Like as, as like males, sometimes a lot of us hold standards. We have to meet someone before we follow them. Mm. So I knew who you were. And I'd seen some of your YouTube stuff. And then when I was coming to Dubai, I was like, I'm going to fucking reach out to him rather than being before. So I was like, hey, mate. And I have been stalking your YouTube because we spoke offline a little bit before where I'm putting more effort into it. So success leaves clues. You've got big channel. Also, some of your interviews, like the Tate one, massive. People are clipping that. So what color is your Bugatti? Yeah, That's, it came from that video. It's one of yours. So uh, yeah, I was looking at some of your stuff. And then I go into the changing room. And I just see this set of delts from behind. And I was like, I fucking bet that's Mike Thurston. <laughs> and then, yeah, we met. And I was getting ready for uh, jiu-jitsu. And, uh, yeah, small world. So you've obviously been very successful with what you've done. You've accomplished a lot. I was wondering, how do you introduce yourself to strangers? Because even when people ask me, like, oh, what do you do for a living? Um, I actually don't even know where to begin. I still say personal trainer. That's my identity. Uh, I wish I could take the PT bit out of my name, but being called James Smith is... Oh, is your, your Instagram is still James Smith PT. Yeah, I can't get it because every James Smith... <laughs> Just to like, let everybody know that you're a PT. Well, the thing was, it used to be James Smith Training hmm. and that was the name of my business. And then I was like, that's a bit shit. So I tried to get rid of it. But having one of the most common names in the world, I was like, this is shit. So uh, yeah, personal trainer, I've been doing that 10 years, but... Uh, I'm seeing someone at the moment, but when I was single, this was the most difficult thing because there was two ways. I could either say to someone who I was or what I did or whatever, or I just kept it quiet. And then if I kept it quiet and we went for a drink and then someone comes over and goes, hey, can I get a selfie? Then you have this weird dynamic. I'm sure you've been through this before. Mm -hmm. where You're like, do I tell someone what I do or do I not? And then even if someone asks me to introduce myself, even in LA before, LA is the only place that girls will chat you up but they'll come over and they'll open the conversation with, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a PT. They'll be like, hmm, cute, and walk away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I'd rather have that than be like, uh, so I'm a three times number one Sunday time. But it's a weird one because we live in a world and a profession that's so new. And I don't like the word influencer because there are a lot of people out there that build a social following through whatever and then do anything they can to monetize. And I mean, if you've got like endorsements and, you know, I champion some people like Chris Williamson, good friend of both of us. Mm -hmm. When I see him like doing deals with like, let's say Gymshark or someone else, I'm a bit like, go get that because it's good. It's just when people have boom bod and skinny tea that I'm like, oh, they're giving us a bad name. So yeah, I still say personal trainer. The 
probably most part of my income over the last five years has still come from online training. So that's what, what do you do for yourself? So I obviously have, I've, I've got a fitness app. I've got a coaching company. I've got a clothing company, which is kind of more of a recent thing. And then there's brand endorsements, there's YouTube revenue, but the brand endorsements is a funny one. And it's interesting because I noticed you don't, I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen you do. Yeah. No, like a, yeah. So that's, it's kind of something I want to move away from because I feel like when, when you have your own stuff, you're free to do whatever you want. You don't feel like you have to, you know, play by the rules or have a certain appearance or say a certain thing so that you don't upset the person who's paying you. But I think at the moment, the only person or, or company that I'm working with is my protein and it's going good, but I don't see that going forever, to be honest. They tried to get me with some legal uh, before where when they did the body coach collab, mm. it was more expensive. I'm pretty sure there was even less protein in the packet or whatever. And uh, they kind of tried to get me with a cease and desist uh, for defamation. And it was quite an interesting one. I think I emailed them back saying, fuck off. Yeah. I took a screenshot. Their Instagram feed just had loads of comments of people saying, I'm never buying from you again. And I was like, hey guys, uh, thanks for the email. Here are some screenshots because I know how comments go missing. Mm. So like, it was like a bit of fake beef for my protein. But like what you say there, it's... Firstly, if we look at a bias of the mind, loss aversion, people find the psychological pain of loss is much worse than the equivalent gain. So if you're walking down the street and you find 20 quid, the amount of happiness is about here. Mm. But if you go down the street and realize you've dropped 20 quid, the amount of unhappiness is way bigger. You find 20 quid, you're like, cool. You drop 20 quid, you're like, fucking hell, that's so annoying. What the hell? I'm so annoyed with myself. And the same way that, let's say, uh, if I said to someone, hey, would you rob someone of 10,000 pounds? They'd be like, no. But would they shave 10 grand off their tax bill through tax evasion? Very likely. Because the idea of robbing someone to gain 10,000 pounds bring them a bit of happiness. But the idea of being, uh, you know, scamming HMRC a bit and getting away with tax, that makes people feel better. Because the psychological pain of losing money to the tax man, although that money was never yours, feels bad. Mm. That's why a lot of people come to Dubai. And you get that pleasure from not losing money. So... When we look at that, if you have an endorsement or a gym brand or a deal that's paying you, let's say 10 grand a month, for you to break free of the reins of that brand deal, the psychological pain is is bad. You feel like you're losing out. You're like, fuck, that's my rent. That's my mortgage. That's my car finance. You feel like you're giving up all of those things in a bid for freedom. And it's very difficult for people to rationally make that decision. Although in your head, you know you want to break away from it. And again, you would just need, you need kind of someone in your life to say, well, why don't you just promote your fitness app in the time you're promoting my protein and you might end up making more money. Yeah. But that that's psychologically difficult for people. And for me, I've always felt quite fraudulent with the building a social following because I never wanted it. It was in the onset, I was training people in a gym in Bracknell. I just wanted to be busy. I just wanted to earn good money. So when the social thing grew, I was like, oh, this is really good for business. But I, even to this day, I've only made money from fitness app, PT and in-person, books, and through talks. So right now at the moment, someone could go say to me, you're, you're a fucking prick. And I'm like, okay. Um, but you're buddied up with someone that will sell you personal tablets three times a week on fucking social media. Mm. Whereas even though you think I'm a prick, I've only ever made money from education. So if people get annoyed that I have a Rolex or an AP, I'm like, I only earned this through giving people information they needed. So... That kind of, for me, is just the way that I can relax and deal with my demons or whatever it is. Whereas 
I think some other people feel fraudulent because they're like, I've worked so hard to get to a certain point. Am I doing myself a disservice doing any paid endorsement under the sun? Even in Dubai, uh, the W were like, we'll give you four nights for free if you post every day. And I was like, I'd rather pay. Yeah. And that freedom, again, it just kind of makes you feel good. Does that make sense? It's nice as well. You, you don't necessarily want everybody to know where you are and where you're staying. I thought I always thought that was weird. I'd rather just, if I'm going to go somewhere, I don't want to have to post every single day that I'm there. It's a bit creepy. It is. And, and, and now if I am to do any brand endorsement or promotion, I have to really like it or I have to really believe in it. Because otherwise, especially at this point now when I'm good for money, like I literally feel like I'm dying inside when I'm doing a post. And, and then everyone's just like, come on. And again, like, you know, we know you're getting paid to do this. That's a Lululemon top. Lululemon do some of the best clothes. If Lululemon said, we want to make you uh, an ambassador, I would say, I don't want your money. Just give me, some give me the clothes. Yeah. Like, and again, I'm wearing a through dark t-shirt at the moment, some special forces lads in the UK. And they they never asked for anything. They just sent me clothes. And because of that, I feel more inclined to, to wear it. And again, have you ever noticed in psychology, even with something as simple as, when I was younger, if I had girlfriends hot on my back, like, oh, don't cheat on me tonight. You'd be like, it would almost make me be like more inclined to talk to girls on a night out. And this is a really fucked thing to say. But I remember when I was like 25, uh, I was dating someone and I went on a trip. And just before she dropped me at the airport, she goes, wear a condom. <laughs> and I, I wasn't sure what was going on, but I didn't sleep with anyone on that trip. And it was almost like, the freedom she gave 25-year-old James is very different to the James that here. Mm. Made me not want to rebel. So She knew what she was doing. Yeah, smart. And the same goes with uh, clothing companies. If some people are like, hi, James, if I send you this, we do a post, I won't reply. But when people are just nice and they're like, hey, I want to send you something, if the W were like, hey, stay here for a few nights, we're only running at this capacity, we'd love to have you, I would be storying the shit out of it. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, I hate this economy we live in where people think that being grateful would would ruin them. And again, I, have you ever gone to a great restaurant where the food's amazing, but it's fucking dead? Mm-hmm. I think to myself, get someone out the front and give everyone a free meal. Hey, give us your information. We'll give you a completely free meal. If your food is that good as a restaurant and you lose 50 pounds on food, which it wouldn't even be for the first night, people, res- the law of reciprocation, reciprocity, whatever it is, they will come back. But if you're out there trying too hard to get people in the door, you're going to, it feels forced and people have forgotten that if you give people enough, they'll feel inclined to come back again with, I'm sure your YouTube, your YouTube content, I say workout vlog, you get tell someone where's the best place to go in Dubai. Then when you release some merch, they're buying it almost out of a, this, this deal of reciprocity where they're like, Mike's given me so much. This is the least I can do back. Yeah. And I think it's crazy that people are so naive to that kind of interaction. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the days when you were a PT. And at what point did you make the transition from saying, no, I need to stop doing so many PT sessions to getting into the content creation and everything that followed on after that? So 2014 became PT. And I remember even a week before my PT course finished, I got a Facebook page and I'm James Smith training or something like that. I can't remember. And very much in the early stages, it was pictures of chicken and broccoli. It was pictures of my workout, today's back day, whatever it was. And I kind of thought that doing that would help, you know, the same trap that every PT falls into, that will get me clients. 
Then my housemate at the time, I said to him, will you help me build a WordPress? I'm going to write a blog or a vlog. A lot of the messages were the same, why you don't need a cheat day. And I remember one was my clients would ask me stuff and it would be great content ideas. And one was like, why is sweet potato so much better than normal potato? And I'd look at my clients and go, I don't know. So I go home that night, read three people's vlogs about it and put it into my own words. And I remember that sweet potato versus normal potato WordPress vlog got 100 likes. And I was like, whoa. So I just got into a routine of every time I heard a a question from a client, if I didn't know it, it would excite me. And I'd go away and put it into a a, a vlog. But then video was starting to pick up and I was becoming a little bit more time poor through PTing so much. And I was fucking tired. I would have to get a cancellation to then drive over to Waitrose, sit in the cafe and write a, a, a vlog. Instead, I'd seen some other people do Facebook Live. So instead, I put my phone there, Facebook Live. Hey guys, we're going to be talking through Something that I now know is bullshit, like the Rep Pyramid. Hey guys, here's the Rep Pyramid, something like that, blah, 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 blah. But I remember if I'd get triggered, I'd get like a Snickers protein Mars bar. Uh, the, the, they had the protein Snickers bar, whatever. And I was like, there's only 19 grams of protein. This is fucking bollocks. I was like, the most people that are going to need a protein feed are going to need more than this. This is just protein and snacks make you feel like there's less fucking guilt. And then the likes on that would be 300. I go, whoa, people are enjoying me being pissed off <laughs> more than they're enjoying me being educative. So I kind of found my way through that. And then my following got to like 2,000. And in my gym, I had the biggest following. So fucking big time. Where were you PTing out of? In Bracknell. There was a gym called, it was a small PT chain. Mm. And it's called Absolutely Fitness. My gym rent was 360 pounds a month. And that was free reign to do whatever after that. In the onset, I thought that was a lot. Then my Monday would pay, my first Monday of the month would pay for my whole month. And then my mom and dad, I have a great relationship with my family. My sister was still living at home. I moved back home at 24 to 26 so that I would wake up, PT. I'd do maybe 10 hours of PT, but my mum would cook too much for dinner so there was some left the next day for me to take to lunch. I would come home, and even though I made my bed, she'd make it properly. She would do my laundry for me. My mum and my dad actually helped me so much in those years of being a big, busy PT that I could do more than everyone else. So then I was becoming experienced faster than everyone else because I wasn't doing, let's say, my laundry and my cooking I would use that extra time driving to work to listen to podcasts, to make content, to reply to people in the comments. So that's how I was like, if I reply to 10 people in the comments, maybe one person will inquire for PT. So then that happened. But then as the following grew to maybe 3,000, I realized how geographically restricted I was to not be able to help people that didn't live in Bracknell. Or maybe charge more. This was it. And I was three years into PTing before I even understood that uh, you know, commodity was really what I was dealing in. I remember I came back from my beast with a really bad come down. I sacked all my evening clients. <laughs> and I said, I'm not doing PT after 3 p.m. The next day, I had to refund about four people. And again, the pain of losing, yeah. say that, three, four thousand pounds. I was like, James, what the hell are you doing? But then I was like, wow, I'm only working 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. The first time someone said to me, oh, I need a trainer 5.30 every day after work. I was like, I don't train evenings. And they're like, excuse me? Mm-hmm. And they were like, what do you mean you don't train after 5.30? And I said, well, I'm one of the more expensive PTs here now because I'm busy. And I'm not going to charge you 55 pounds for an hour. And we're going to queue for a leg press with a load of builders that have just come off the building site. I was like, if anything, I want to have my bread and butter hours during the day. And I always said to people, the realization I'd, I'd hit was, Everyone goes as a PT, six till nine and five till seven are your best hours as a PT. 
And two years in, I thought, if I have kids, that means I'll never see them. So I need to have a business in place that means I could even drop my kids at school, PT all day, pick them up, and be able to spend all the time with them. So that social media strategy was in place there. Got to about three, four years. I was the earning the most in my gym. I was doing the most PT. And then because you're always PTing and you're busy, you attract more people. It's like basic physics in the universe. The more mass something has, the more gravity it has. And suddenly I got to a point where I was a bit bored. Sounds crazy. I was learning, I was PTing people, I was making good money. I was playing sevens almost every weekend in a different country in the summer. I'd be in Stockholm. I'd be going to Norway, Dubai sevens, all of this. I wasn't even a good sevens player. I was just great on the social. I was living a great life traveling. I'd never wanted to go to Australia. Never in my life. But I had a psychedelic trip at a festival in Croatia. And I've never had such an introspective conversation myself. What do you think? It was ketamine. <laughs> it was ketamine. I've, I've not alluded to that too much before. But now that ketamine is being scientifically proven to help with depression, it's legalized in uh, America as a one-a-day treatment. Have you heard about this? No, but I've, I've tried it. It's, yeah, and it, I couldn't believe... First, I always said no. That was my line. I'm never doing ketamine. The first time I tried it, one minute after I went, I get it. And even in America, I met people who had the nasal spray mm. and they had it in their handbags. So I'd be at a party, someone would get out, like, what's that? They're like, oh, it's ketamine. You go to a doctor, you get it prescribed for depression. And although that is drug abuse, that is completely not what I agree with in life. You know, I wouldn't say to someone to abuse antidepressants or, you know, uh, let's say, sleeping pills or anything like that. But then this was probably only the third time I'd ever tried ketamine. And I was a big advocate of MDMA in party settings. And people, again, will be so angry to hear that. But some of the feedback I got was that I'm a better human on MDMA than I am on alcohol. Yeah, A lot of my rugby friends would be like, you're so much more caring, attentive. Even to the point, I was much more aware of my surroundings on MDMA. So... If I get drunk, I'm a very good drunk. I'm not aggressive. I don't fight, anything like that. But I'd be at festivals and I'd know when people have run out of water. So my friends would be maybe five meters away. I'd see them like, you know, when people are sipping that last bit of water in the bottle, I'd always have a spare one in my bum bag. I'd be like, just have that. And then someone would be like, oh, I'm going to the toilet. I'd be like, wait, these people haven't gone to the toilet in like half an hour. Maybe we'll go as a group. So I'd then get everyone together. I'd say, like, hey guys, we're going to go to the toilet. I'd be that guy at the festival. So yeah, there's there's that point. And then, Ketamine, I'm on the dance floor, I'm at Martin Garrix, I'm at Ultra, I'm in Europe. And I turned to my friend and I was like, I hadn't said anything in five minutes, so <laughs> I'm moving to Australia. And he was like, what? You can imagine someone that's never said that. They, I might have turned around and gone, wow, what stage are we at? Or whatever it was. But me, I was like, I'm moving to Australia. And uh, three and a half, four weeks later, I'd gone. And that was the time that I realized, and my friend said I was crazy. My mates were like, you've just built a PT business. Now you're running away from it. But I've been doing some smart marketing stuff. I had an email list with a few hundred people on it. I had two and a half thousand followers. I remember I was trying to sell so many things to my following no one ever bought. And that first email I sent saying, do you want online coaching? Like five people said yes. And funnily enough, there's a guy in Dubai, might not be here anymore. His name was Cliff Doyle. He worked for McLaren. He emailed me about coaching and... I said, mate, Dubai's a long way to come for a consultation. And he goes, you're going to train me online. I said, I don't do online training. He goes, well, you best start. I said to him, I don't know what I'm doing. He goes, well, you can learn. 
and he was paying me 55 pounds a week. I was like, well, I'm going to have to make a digital training program. I'm going to have to send it to you. And here's my number. Why don't we check in every day? And it was actually Cliff being bossy with me. I said no to him in the beginning. That was the beginning of online training. And when I went backpacking to Australia, I had 10 clients at that point on 55 pounds a week. So 550 pounds a week, that, I was the richest backpacker in Australia. And through working and serving people online, I now was a little bit less money rich, but a lot more time rich. Yeah. So I was like, what can I do with my time? I can service my clients, but once I've done that, I'll use content creation to now feed my social funnels to get more online clients. And then that was it. It was born from there. It's interesting because so many people now, they want to be an online coach. They want to have that freedom. But so many of them, they don't put the hours in on the gym floor doing the one-to-one sessions with clients, which I think, in my opinion, is essential for anyone that wants to do online coaching. Because if you've never trained somebody in person, then how on earth are you going to know how to train somebody online? But there's, there's just... It's crazy because now there's there's literally no barriers to entry. You set up an Instagram page, get yourself in semi-decent nick or just talk about some very basic fitness points and then automatically you can just start charging money. Someone emailed me this week and he had done one session on the gym floor and he wants to go online. I said, mate, you haven't, you haven't learned anything. For me, I've injured clients doing a, a trap bar deadlift by loading them too quickly. I've you know, tried giving people the wrong squat variations. I've understood people's different pain points. I now know proprioception. I now know progressive overload. I, to the point that when I was doing online coaching, about three months in, I get them to send me a video of themselves and I could tell by how anxious they were sending me the video, what their program would look like. Because I remember if I wanted a middle-aged housewife to do a goblet squat, I wouldn't go get a 12 kilogram dumbbell from the weight section because it's the most sought after bicep curl dumbbell. Instead, I'll get her a 12 kilogram kettlebell and I teach her how to gobble it with that. And the considerations of knowing that she would then in her program go to a different area of the gym, these are things that you don't learn unless you coach people. And it's crazy. We've got these hyper confident fit people who think they're ready to coach people online. My girlfriend is like a professional athlete, trains loads, we're training in the gym the other day and I see her and she's doing this insane skater squat. And I'm like, I'm like, that's really interesting. And she's going back using the plyometric box to set the height. And she's doing it to help with the performance, but to reduce injury. She blew out her ACL really badly. So I said to her, do you understand how much knowledge you have and you don't sell it to anyone? Mm. You're overqualified and not selling it. Whereas everyone else is underqualified and overselling it. So it's crazy there's such a spectrum of people with knowledge not sharing it, people without knowledge trying to be that coach figure. And it is it is insane that people do that. And again, I was never the smartest or best coach. That's not how I got to where I was. I was very real with people. And I really enjoyed training general populations where if someone's like, James, I want to get a massive chest. I'm like, probably not the guy for you, man. <laughs> you know, probably not the guy. Someone's like, oh, you know, I, I need help with playing rugby at semi-pro level. I'm like, I'm probably not your guy. But if someone's like, oh, the gym intimidates me and i am come off Slimming World and I don't like doing hit, I'm like, yeah, I'm probably your guy then. Mm. So I, I want to know more about the when you left the PT position when you were making good money. I know obviously you, you had that trip. You wanted to go to Australia, but what gave you the confidence to make that move because I've done it before like two major times in my career where I was 
very similar position to you. I was in Newcastle, had my own gym, was making good money, but I knew it wasn't for me. I, w- I wanted something more. And luckily enough, I- I've always had a lot of self-belief and I knew that whatever I decided to do, I'm going to be okay. So I, I left that position. I moved to London. I think the only thing I had at that point in terms of revenue was an EHP lab sponsorship. So it was like a thousand dollars a month. And I was, my rent was almost double that sponsorship. So I knew I had to hustle and work my ass off. And for me, that's when I started pumping out the YouTube content because I knew like, okay, well, I need to get clients online. I need to start making money immediately. So now I need to hustle and step my game up. For you, did you feel as though when you when you moved to Australia, was was there ever an issue with money or you were you okay getting clients? Yeah, I guess it, was this the same time when you started putting out content on Facebook? Yeah, so um it's a really good question. So when I was about nineteen, I'd like finished university, dropped out of university, maybe twenty. I needed uh jobs to earn money. I was working in a pub when I was younger, next to a caravan site. Uh, I worked at a polo club, which was near where my parents lived. So like at 16, maybe 15, I was like doing the most basic jobs. I work as a groundsman. I drive a tractor. I do anything. And then do you remember Love Film where you got posted the DVDs? Mm-hmm. They took over Blockbuster. I did a job selling that in shopping centers. So I was literally 19 years old, stopping people. I got seven pounds commission a sale. If I didn't make 10 sales in a day in a shopping center, it wasn't worth my time. I'd be traveling to Swindon from Windsor to do this as well. Then... I got a job in door-to-door sales for Empower in Gloucester. So then I was knocking on 300 doors a day trying to sell gas and electric to people. And at the time, I never realized how thick skin this was making me. And in retrospect, I look back and I go, I'm almost impressed at myself at 20 and 21. I was like, I couldn't dream of anything worse than that right now. But I do that. Then I went into sales jobs. I was putting on a suit and I was having to call 200 people a day. Then I went into other sales roles. Then there were these little times that I just self-combusted and... After one corporate job, I moved to New Zealand to play rugby for six months, worked on a farm, came back, went back into corporate, and I fucked off to Asia to six months, and I came back. And that's when I became a PT, and I was like, I just want, I don't care about money, I just want to be happy. So then I made it work as a PT, and I kind of actually had accrued quite a lot of evidence that whenever I put myself in a situation, I'll get myself out of it. You know, I ask people a lot of the time, how many times have you actually let yourself down in life? How many times have you truly disappointed yourself and failed? And for most people, it's never. Even in bringing this into a fitness context, when was the last time someone failed a fucking squat? 99% of people haven't failed a lift in years. Hmm. But we're so hesitant to go to the point of failure. And, And I thought to myself, if I go to Australia and it all doesn't work out, I'll move back home with my parents and work in the same gym. If I lose half my client base, I'm still earning most of the more people. So that was always my backup. So when I got to Sydney... I very randomly, this is like one of these crazy stories where I was backpacking down the East Coast to get to Sydney. And one of my friends who I met at a Hannah Wants Festival uh, club night in Southampton years ago, he messaged me on Facebook. He's like, you're in Sydney, let's get a beer. So I meet him for a beer, messaged me the next day. And he goes, we're going to something tomorrow night. I'm not telling you what it is. Come in fitness clothes and I'll meet you on Bondi Beach at 7 or 8 p.m. He took me to something called No Lights, No Lycra. It was a rave in a Bondi Pavilion, 8 p.m., completely sober, in the dark. So you imagine 200 people going into a dark room to the point they even covered the fire exit signs. And for one hour, you just dance and no one can see you. 
It was the weirdest, <sighs> craziest, sweatiest, and just the most bizarre night of my life. And then afterwards, we go out into the sea, and everyone just swims in the sea, like washes the sweat off, whatever. And there, a girl asked me what I did. I said, I'm a PT. She goes, I've got a contact for you. He'll get you into fitness first. So I meet this guy. And unless you've got a permanent visa in Australia, you can't work for these big gym chains because they know you're just going to fuck off. He got me into a fitness first through a franchise. And I got put into the same gym as Duran. So that's how we met. We're both in the same fitness first in Sydney. And to be honest, the online stuff was doing quite well. And still 550 pounds a week, but I actually was ready to can that to go back to face to face. The online thing was just to fund me as I was backpacking. I was like, I need to be back working with people. I'll never forget, probably my most grateful conversation I've had with Darren. He said, How much are you making a week? I said, Oh, about a thousand dollars. He goes, What are you doing here? He was like, Look around. No one wants to be here. We're all in here trying to get out. You're out trying to get in. And I actually tried my hardest in Sydney to build a client base, but it was 32 PTs in a small gym. We're still four or five gyms in the same district area. 2,000 members, high participation rate for PT. I never got above seven hours. And I was actually, I took that really personally because it was one of the only times in my PT career that I'd failed. And in March 2017, I remember just having one day where I was like, I can't do this. So I bought a tripod and I got a whiteboard that would stick onto the wall. So literally, I was renting a flat, stick the whiteboard to it, and I didn't know how to edit. I didn't have any cameras. I didn't understand. Even talking to you before, I was like, I'm still learning stuff now. I was like, I can't afford to buy a camera. I'm pretty skinned. I'm living week to week. 500 pounds isn't the most when you travel in the world. I went home, and I was actually lying to the guy who got me into the gym so I could get back home for 3, 4 p.m., which was 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. So every day without fail... I went live to a topic that I'd pre-chosen. And I was like, I had to perform to camera for three, four minutes without making a mistake, no edit, nothing. And these videos started getting a bit of traction, going a bit viral to the point that my email marketing uh, list was growing, my client base was growing just by going live every day. I got to 50,000 followers on Facebook just doing these lives. I do one vlog, one live, I put the post there. And then I remember my business getting to the point by may i had 78 online clients and they were now paying 65 pounds a week i was earning more money than i'd ever earned in my life and i would go back to the gym in sydney i only ever got my hours up to about six there were two clients there that i enjoyed training and people were real shitty with me in the gym when i started so not only was my business failing not only could i not get it off the ground no one was nice to me Duran was the only guy that gave me sound a day uh, I still never spoke to about 10 of the 30 PTs and I was contracted there for a year. In Australia, there's a lot of tall poppy syndrome. People don't like to see you do well. And when I turned up, I really alienated people because the live videos were such a big part of my brand. 9am when all the PTs were having breakfast, I would go sit outside, put my tripod out and do a Facebook live. And everyone was like, who the fuck is this guy? I also, the two weeks before I started in the gym, started tagging my newly formed Instagram posts to Fitness First, George Street. So all the PTs before I started were like, who's this dickhead? Mate, I... No, nobody else would have been doing that. Yeah, they weren't. And they hated me for it. And the live thing was crazy. And I'll never forget, Dylan coming around once, well, I didn't even know him that well. And he was like, he went back to the group of PTs. He was like, there's 300 people watching them. Like, and out of all the other PTs who just thought I was a prick, he was like, 
I'm going to learn from what he's doing. And I'll never forget, Duran said to me, he goes, how do you sell your online uh, services? I go, oh, basically I do these daily emails, I do this, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, I know, I've been signed up for two weeks. He was one of the only people that was inspired by what I was doing instead of hating. And uh, then from there, I carried on training a couple of my clients. And I remember one of them saying she wanted to go to a festival and she couldn't afford a ticket. I was like, I'll just stop paying me. I was like, I, I've joked about being rich even when I was really quite poor. Mm-hmm. I, ju- I was new money. I was two months into earning good money. And I was like, oh, just don't pay me. And she came to a session and bought me a Lululemon top. I said, that's it. I'm going to train you. You're going to bring me a present every session. And it was crazy. In July that year, I first flew first class before even flying business, which was a bit oh, mad. That is a dangerous that's- move. <laughs> and do you know what? It was the first five grand I'd ever had in my bank account. First 5,000 pounds ever. And I spunked it all on this flight because... I knew my back would be up against the wall. And I sat there in first class, got absolutely fucking wasted with Etihad. Had my own apartment on, like, on a plane, as they call it. And I was like, I will never be the same. And the best thing is, I'll go back to Sydney, a different person. Yeah. And a lot of people think you're crazy for this. My, I did a post about this the other day. It's called Touching Your Future, where you do something you can't afford right now. Because if you just manifest and think about your future without experiencing it, it just remains a thought, not a feeling. But if I put myself in that part of the plane... I've experienced it. I've tasted it. I've felt it. I've slept in it. Even though I couldn't afford to sustain that, it was there. And the craziest thing was that that was July. That March period where I nearly had a mental breakdown, I had to borrow money off my dad to get a sofa because we moved into an apartment. My other two housemates who were friends from home kitted out the whole place and sent me the bill. And it was only maybe like 500 pounds, but I had to message my dad and be like, can you PayPal me some money, please? So... It was crazy that from March to that July period, I'd gone from borrowing money from my dad to flying first class. And the crazy thing is once I tasted that, my mentality was different. I, it switched something in my mind. I was doing my lives every morning. I was out on the balcony. I was posting content whenever I could. I was servicing my online clients. In the first part of the year, where I couldn't afford to get Ubers, I would get the train or the bus. And in the early stages of having Instagram, I would find the 10 biggest influencers or the 10 biggest gyms in Sydney. I would then manually follow all of their followers because I thought if one in 10 people follows me back and I follow 5,000 people, I've got 500 people in Sydney who might inquire for PT. And it never worked out. And even now I find myself following really random people. It's from that day when I was sat on the bus following up to everyone. And, um, yeah, it, it's been a pretty crazy journey since. And all the content that I've created since is, of course, we spoke of, well, we spoke about the law of reciprocity. It was actually all about that. If I help enough people with content, enough people go, oh, fuck it, here's my email address. Then they go, oh, fuck it, I'll try your academy. And that's really been the, the strategy ever since, which is why I've been so late to the YouTube and other things, because that's just been my funnel ever since. It's interesting what you said about business class, because I remember the first business class flight I took I think it was just after COVID. So I was like, you know what? I don't want to be crammed up against a load of people anyway, wearing masks. I'd rather just have a bit of space. And I did it. And I was like, whoa, like this, this is what I enjoyed traveling, doing that. And then from that point on, I made a promise to myself, any long haul flight that I would take, I would go business class. And that just motivated me to be like, okay, well, this is, this is the lifestyle which I want. This is how much it's going to cost me. I wasn't thinking about cutting 
my spending elsewhere. I was like, okay, well, I need to earn more money. How am I going to earn more money to sustain this lifestyle? You're and I made it work. You're never the same. No. And people think it's such a <clears throat> crazy thing. And again, at 27, I would have said, oh, fuck that. I'll fly an economy. Give me the three grand. I'll spend it on the other end. I completely misinterpreted the effect has on your mindset. And I've plagued Chris Williamson with this. I said to him, I, I pretty much forced him into it. And he goes, every time I fly business, I think of you. And he messages me. <laughs> and I said to him, you need to respect yourself to the point that, you know, and I'm not saying anything bad about flying economy. I did it for, for years, you know, New Zealand. Back in the day, our business class to me was not having someone sat next to me. So for years, I was that person. But exactly what you said there, there are days that are tough that you don't want to record. There are days that your camera's there, you're sat in front of it, you have no idea what you're going to say. And when you need to muster and cultivate motivation, whatever it is, you think about those things. And creating, and I used to have wealthy clients and they used to say this to me all the time. They're like, you need a better car. I was like, my car's fine. They're like, it's not fine. You can't be the highest paid PT and drive a category C 10-year-old Volkswagen Polo, which I did. She was like, you shouldn't be putting your key in the door to open it. She was like, we pay you far too much for you to have that car. And the same, there's a moment where, and again, I don't give a fuck if someone misinterprets this. When you walk onto a flight that you've paid for, that insane amount of money, and you board on a different bridge to everyone else, you sit in your seat and they offer you champagne and you're comfortable, you get a real appreciation for your work and your, your effort. And it, it's one of those things, like you say, you'd never go back. And mm. again, there are so many things. You might have been quite apprehensive about starting a podcast, but I guarantee you all of those things you've done before, the expensive shit, the AP, whatever it is, actually motivates you. And that's another thing I like a nice watch is that I don't give a fuck about the time. I sometimes like something touching me that reminds me why I do it. I had to, uh, I remember one of my first book signings, I had to sign 5,000 books in a day and I bought myself a really expensive Rolex and I was like, signing those books will feel difficult, but having a Rolex on my wrist yeah. to make me feel better about it. But you know what's interesting here in Dubai, one of the reasons I got it was because when I go to these networking events, I notice some of the guys that have money that are wearing the nice watches, they will notice who else is wearing the nice watches. So there's definitely been occasions where they've looked at me and, you know, they might be like, oh, who's this guy? And then they see the watch and then they're like, oh, okay, so this guy's doing, he must be doing all right for money. And then they naturally become more interested to know what it is that you do. And it's the same thing I notice if I'm, you know, at an event and I see these other people, they, they might look like, just like scruffy guy, but then they're rocking this crazy watch. And then instantly I'm like, I'm, I'm intrigued because I'm always so interested to know how people have made their money because there's always so much that I can learn. Even with you, like I'm curious to know, I don't, obviously I don't want to know the numbers, but in terms of the percentages of w- what gives you what. So say for example, you have, you got two books out. Three. Three books. Sorry, I should have done. You got three books out. You've got the coaching app platform. You do the events or the the talks. Is there anything else you do? Uh, no, that's they're the three uh, main pillars of business. It's interesting what you say about the watches because if we were primitive hunter gatherers or whatever, if we, we rewind three thousand, four thousand years, me and you would have the biggest stick, and people were you know we'd be leading a pack of people going to war, and people would look and they go, "That's a big stick. That guy's been around. Yeah. That guy's." That guy's been in some battles. We'd have the scars, whatever. And the watch is almost a representation of that, the amount of stuff you've gone through. And again, like what you say, 
I very much, especially when I drink, I'm hugely complimentative of people. I joke, when I see big guys, I go up, I'm like, you're a big guy. They're like, cheers. I'm like, do you play sport? They're like, no. I'm like, you're wasted. And I'm like, what's this on your wrist? And they turn around. I'm like, that's a nice watch. Like, I, I enjoy that part of a conversation. I go, they're not cheap. They go, I know. I'm like, what do you do? And as men, we're actually trying to impress each other a lot. The main reason that men train for a big chest is to impress other men. Women, I believe, prefer shoulders. We're in there. We like, it. and that's completely fine. And the same thing with watches. I don't think uh, you should ever wear a watch to impress a woman, but I think you should definitely wear a watch to impress a man, which is a sexist thing in itself. Because ultimately, like you say, it it goes to show that you're interested in money. You're interested in an element of status. You're interested in something that's well made. And for me, I, I had this theory where I was like, someone, some idiots do do have nice watches, but. It, it's just something nice that men can do and we can talk about and we can express interest in, especially as an icebreaker. And women have done the same for years. Like, oh, I love your dress. Oh, what is that? Oh, I love what you're wearing. Oh, those heels are amazing. I think it's quite nice because more time goes on. Us dudes, we just wear plain black t-shirts and jeans on the night out. Yeah. And I love a black t-shirt. That's like literally all I wear. It's the one thing. But as far as uh, revenue from stuff, I've always uh, been not secretive with it. The, the book thing for a start, in royalties, you earn about a pound a book. Right? What, sorry? You earn about a pound a book okay. for the royalties on each sale of a book, which seems insignificant when they're sold at 10, 15, and 20 pounds. But that's because I use a publisher and I use HarperCollins. But that's, that is great. I did not expect that. Yeah, so you, you could self publish and you make but that's headache. significantly more. Yeah. And I use HarperCollins UK. And when we did the first book, I wrote it, I had an editor, and I've written all my books. I love the process. And again, people say it's difficult. It's not. If, I took your phone away from you and I put you on this table for half an hour every day for a year and I gave you a subject and a coffee. You'd put a pretty good book together. And the assimilation of it is difficult, but that's why you have an editor. She goes, okay, let's move this to here, this to here, cool. Same way that you might have an editor shuffle around your content in a video to make it flow better. That's their expertise. But then we did the book. I went on Piers Morgan, GMB. I went on Chris Evans Radio. I did all these like cool events at the back of it. And Luke, my manager, you met earlier on, he looked at me and he goes, don't tell HarperCollins, but we would have done this for free. We would have done this for free. Piers Morgan now knows who you are. You debated him on live TV. We sold 12,000 hardbacks off that conversation. So we then got the Sunday number one times title, which then means that... More people see it. Yeah, and then at the next Fitness Expo, they're all, we need headline billing for James. Why? Because he's Sunday Times number one bestseller. This person isn't. You know, so... It gives you so much credibility. It's exactly that. And to be honest, even with all the books, I legitimately, hand on heart, after experiencing the the doors they opened, I would have done them for free. So they're not really a moneymaker, but it is amazing to see the royalties come through. And again, as a trainer, I've always felt fraudulent of charging people money for my expertise. We all do this. The people that say they don't experience imposter syndrome, are, are, they're full of shit because whenever we got paid as PTs, a good hourly rate, or even whatever, we kind of feel like we're not worth it. But when I write a book for a year and I sell it for 10 pounds, and somewhere, I, I kind of in my head, I'm like, that's a year's work for a tenner. People used to pay me six times that for an hour. And I pissed twice in that session. Mm. They spent 10 pounds on me pissing. So don't tell me that a year's work on a topic. You know, I literally message people in my DMs. I go, buy my book if you're not sure. And if you don't like it, let me know. I'm Monzo, you the fucking cost. Then... Everything in that, it is actually a really good deal because like we spoke about before, 
if I sell a book for £10 and I make £1, the transition to a lot of people doesn't seem that smart. But then if someone gets a lot of value from that, next time I pop up a talk or next time I'm doing an event or whatever, they're like, your book helped me, law of reciprocity, I'm going to come to your event. Then that's a £35 ticket or a £45 ticket. So you kind of get them in other areas. It's almost like a foot in the door. And I always openly said I didn't want to write a book. And again, Luke, the the brains, he goes, James, two things. One, there are people not on social media, but he goes, two, someone's going to see your book that fucking hates you. They're going to think you're a fucking prick. And they're going to pick up your book and you have the opportunity to change their mind. So when I wrote every book, I thought about this, that I want someone who hates me to pick it up, to go, oh, look at this piece of shit and to open it on a page and I want them to finish the page. And I want them to raise their eyebrows and go, oh, that motivated me more writing the book for people that almost hated me than it did for people that wouldn't. Yeah, It was, a, it was my way of proving them wrong. And It's interesting because I, I imagine with the content you put out on Instagram, short form content, and I would imagine a lot of it, in a way, you will do it strategically to piss people off or cause a bit of controversy because that gets attention. And I must admit, when I was going on your social media Instagram, I had automatically formed this opinion that I had of you. And that was drastically changed when I watched the podcast with the Diary of the CEO. I watched both of them. And I was like, oh, like this is what you're really like. Like You're actually like a really sound guy, smart guy as well. And it's, I'd be curious to know what you thought of me with the first time you went on my Instagram. Real quick, guys, I just want to share with you something which I spent the end of 2023 putting together for you. You see, in life, if you are unhappy with something, you need to change it. That is one of the core philosophies that has driven me, my businesses, and my fitness over the past 10 years. In recent years, I've been asked frequently how I've managed to go from being an average personal trainer, working all day, every day in a gym in the north of England, to the position that I am in today. That is why I decided to create the digital playbook. This is a step-by-step blueprint for anybody who finds themselves in the same position that I did years ago, wondering to myself, how can I make money online? Can I really make a full-time income from creating content about the things that I actually like? How can I travel the world, work from my laptop, and at the same time still afford to live a great lifestyle? It's essentially a playbook on how I built multi-million pound businesses off the back of creating content online. If you want to check it out, head over to thedigitalplaybook.net and you can book in a call with my team to find out more. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, I said, the first thing I messaged you is, if I see you, you've got to keep your top on. <laughs> but to, and to be fair, the, 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 when I first saw you, it was very easy for me to assume you were like a lot of the other fitness guys. Mm-hmm. You're almost in such good shape, it went against you, in yeah. some respect. Because it's very difficult for someone to be well-versed in other areas of their life when they're in that such good shape. But don't judge a book by its cover. When I went on your YouTube, and I thought, okay, he's got good views. And some people do have good views just because they're in good shape. Mm-hmm. And I said this during the change room. I went back years. And when I saw that you did a video with Dorian Yates, and then there was a playlist for Dorian Yates, and then I realized that you'd done a video with him this year or maybe last year, two years ago then, five years ago. I thought, fuck, five years ago. 2017, 
the year that I'm having a breakdown and I thought it was a big deal buying a fucking whiteboard and a tripod to go live to a couple hundred people, you were already doing the YouTube graft. And I was like, fucking hell, fair play. I actually screenshotted some of your stuff and sent it to Jordan Luke. I was like, this guy's been at it so early on from before us. This isn't because he's in good shape. This is because he's an early adopter. He is very thorough. His edits are good, the pacing, everything else. I was like, I actually have a lot to learn from this person. And I admire your success in those fields. I think it was almost easier for me in my head to, again, paint a picture of you based on the physique and the shape you're in. And then I was like, oh, actually, we were often very wrong. For myself on socials, I would rather be a person they don't like. They're almost like, oh, this guy's a prick. And then I get them in the honey trap Mm. rather than some people try and be the nice person. Then you meet them in real life and there's no substance to them. Yeah. But yeah, I... I actually, and then meeting you in real life, I was like, oh, same guy. And I actually probably did the same. I looked at who our mutual friends are. I think I asked uh, Matt when I saw him, but also Chris Williamson, who I've grown to talk to a lot. I think Chris Williamson's about to explode. Yeah. I And there have been times I've seen people do really well, and it's not disgruntled me, but I'm like, I don't know if that person deserved the success they're getting. But with him, it actually makes me happy. I'm like, when I listen to him on Rogan, yeah, that was crazy. I messaged him an hour in. I go, how the fuck are you so composed? He's he's, he's a completely different person. Because bear in mind, I went to Newcastle Uni. So I was friends with him then when he was just like, we were doing like the same jobs where we were topless, just going around the clubs, just having fun. And he is a completely different person now. He's he's so smart. He is absorbing so much information from his conversations. I can't keep up with him. Yeah. And actually three of the topic, uh, I got smashed with him in Austin. We're in Austin at the same time. And it got to the point where we were absolutely spangled. But before that, I got, he gave me, I said I was writing a book on confidence and he gave me three t- topics. He goes, research these three topics. And one of them is one of the key components of the fucking book. I messaged him, I was like, mate, you really helped me write this book. Mm. And um, his consistency, the, again, his flow with his like, YouTube strategy. He's, he's very, very consistent. And I think that is, it's such a major part of, becoming successful and even you said like I've, I've been in the game for a while but i have gone through phases of i wouldn't say necessarily falling off but definitely losing motivation and then i'll go through periods of time where i'd maybe just put one video out a month and it, it hurts your subscriber rate your your revenue from youtube but also the sales elsewhere and you just have to just keep at it like regardless of how you feel i think that's the most important thing because i i don't think i'm naturally the type of person who just loves being on camera. I really, I have to force myself to do it. I have to bring out this persona and this energy. And even when I started doing something like this, like the podcasting, I'm like, I don't think I'm a natural talker or interviewer, but it's, I feel like it's something which I need to do. Like regardless of whether I, you know, I wake up and I want to do it or not, I have to do it. And I'm, I'm curious with, with the content which you're putting out, especially on Instagram, like you're, you're pointing something out every single day do you find that comes easy or do you really have to kind of motivate yourself to put something out? There are some days, definitely. But then I think to myself, you know, how long the, the effort, the risk versus reward. Another thing that I actually love doing is reposting. So, so many people are petrified of reposting something in case it gets received wrongly. So I say this when I help PTs with their business strategy, I go, every day if you're posting once, you could repost something new and something old. You've now doubled your posting frequency. On a good day, maybe 20% of people will even see the first post. 
And I said also, you want to grow a following of people that want to see you do well. If someone sees you repost a video and they go, oh, fucking hell, I've seen this already. They're not going to buy your fucking products. They're not going to be using your MyProtein code. They're not going to be buying your fucking clothes brand that come out. They're miserable little bastards that fucking... That's made them happy moaning about that in your comments. The people you truly want as a following will see the repost. They'll go, get it. They'll double tap it without watching it. Mm. They'll even remember how it helped them and they might share it to their story without watching it. There are so many little tactics like that that I use that I repost just so that I can... I always want to be there. Every day, I seem to think that someone's going to need help today. Someone's going to button up their jeans and it's going to, the button's going to pop out. Someone's going to have their husband leave them. Someone's going to, you know, try and fit on the red dress that they haven't worn for a few years. It's not going to fit. I need to be there on that day. But like what you say there, some days it is difficult. And I just need to have a word of myself and just be like, look, it's not that hard. You were knocking on doors for years before this. Mm. Um, and again, it's crazy one thing that I really need to do it. I take motivation from everyone, even people I hate. And I say this to Duran sometimes. If I'm ever struggling, <laughs> I don't hate anyone. People I dislike. Nah, fuck it, I hate them. There are people I hate on social media. I hate them. If I need inspiration, I go look at their success and I go, you're not done yet. Mm. And another thing, and this sounds crazy, you, if you're a business owner and you hate Andrew Tate, you can still learn lessons of success from him. Case in point, the guy's doing three to four podcasts a fucking day. Now, even if you hate him, even if you want him deplatformed, do you think you could be doing more podcasts? Oh, but they've not got a big uh, reach. They've not got a big audience. Oh, they've not got the main downloads. Fuck you. You could agree to do it just on the premise they send you the footage to make clips for your own socials. You are actually going on people's podcasts, absolutely not yours, I'm saying that, to get more content for yourself to use. Because you'll be in a flow state in front of a DSLR and a professional microphone set expressing your opinion that you can repurpose. Mm. Even the biggest tape hater can take lessons from his success. So sometimes I do that. And by exposing myself to people like that, say this, oh, I've got a podcast tomorrow morning. Oh, that's, that's long. You can repurpose your thoughts and go, actually, do you know what? Fuck it. I need to be doing more of that. I need to be, Rogan's doing a podcast one a day. I need to be podcasting more. Tate's on four as a guest today. I could be doing, uh, being a guest more. This person's putting out more content than me. I like to motivate myself from other people, irrespective of if I like them or not. And that's that's what helps me drive with the content thing. And also, I'm sure you've done things for like your family and your friends. You might upgrade someone's flight. You might get your parents something or whatever. And then I use things like that, especially materialistic stuff. There's a theory I have. I'm a big advocate that pleasure and happiness are two different things. Pleasures, the watches, the boat parties, the nights out, whatever. Happiness is waking up, having a coffee, doing some work. It's having time with the dog. It's the fact your family are healthy. Happiness we all have. And everyone has access to happiness. You could be broke, but still fucking happy. I've been very happy as broke. You can live a life of happiness without pleasure, but you can't live a life of pleasure without happiness. And a lot of people, especially in Dubai, probably end up in despair because they've got the money, the girls, the car, but they haven't got anything that truly makes them happy. Mm. So if I buy something for myself, it gives me pleasure. If I buy it for other people, it makes me happy. So the days that I can't bother to sell, to do this, to do what, I sometimes flip my mindset and go, oh, actually, I could work really hard today, make some good money, and buy something nice for someone else. And... Yeah. That, again, is kind of a motivator that I use. I, I had that experience this summer. It's the first time I'd done something like it. It was my birthday. 
And I was trying to think like what to do. And to be honest, like there's, there's nothing I really want. I don't want any presents. I'm good. I'm happy. I just, I wanted to have a, a good time with my friends. I wanted them to have a good time. And I ended up paying for, it was like one of the best tables at Blue Marlin on Sunday. That was 6K. There was, uh, the following day we went on a boat and then we had a dinner at Leo, which again was not cheap. And it was the first time I covered everything. I paid for everyone. I didn't want them to pay any money. I was just like, look, let's just have a good time. I want you all to have a good time. And it was literally the most satisfying thing ever just to, to treat my friends who have always been there for me and just everybody have a good time and treat them to something which I feel as though they deserve. A lot of people don't understand that as well. And they think we're insane and they go, oh, but you could have saved that money and you could have bought a house and got a mortgage and you could have, you know. And again, spending that money, enjoying the happiness, seeing the money leave your account, actually then again brings you that sense of, I want to do this again. Mm-hmm. And being addicted to looking after your friends and people around you is a very good sentiment to have. And again, I always joke around with the boys and I'm like, if if everything went out tomorrow, no more events, no more books, no more social, everything, boom, I'd sit back and go, fucking hell, we had a good ride. Mm. And I don't think people think about that enough. And even like that, the blue mile and everything, you wake up the next day and you're like, wow, that, that ju- money isn't real. Mm-hmm. It's something that you could trade for that day. They'll never forget that. They'll never forget the emotions. And I think so many people are so caught up with being sensible and, and, and not doing those things. They miss out on great opportunities in life. And again, never know how much longer you got here yeah again tristan tate you know i mentioned him quite a bit the tate brothers here his quote probably one of the best ever spend 50 percent of your money like you're gonna live 50 years spend 50 percent of your money like you're gonna live 50 days that's a good quote clip that get that on tiktok (laughs) so one thing which I, i really respect about you is the the speaking events you do like that is for me I'm definitely getting better at it, but my public speaking skills have never been the best. I tried a few times at school and had to do it, hated it. And then more recently, I've been in situations where I've you know, s- spoken in front of crowds. I'm getting more comfortable. I think more so because I- I'm more confident in myself and I feel like I have more to say and more to offer. But I, I want to know, did you immediately just start doing these talks in front of massive audiences or was it a gradual progression where the the people and the crowd was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger? So again, credit Luke, the big fucker that was in it before. He tuned in to my Facebook lives in the early days and he messaged me and he goes, if you fly to Dubai, if I fly you to Dubai, will you meet me? And I said, just let's have a FaceTime because I was in Australia. He was here in the UK. And um, I said to him like, what's your idea? He's like, I want to run your events for you. But before this, I wanted to come back home to the UK to see my family. And if we look at 2017, uh, in the very early stages, I flew home and I had a return leg from Air China. 10-hour stop-off in Beijing, no phones, whatever. Because when I initially went to Oz, I couldn't afford anything apart from Air China. Never, ever fly Air China. So I went back home, fucking most horrible thing. But I thought, to help me expense my flight, let's do an event. So I did an event in Bracknell, called it Fundamentals of Fat Loss. It was a fat loss seminar educative i'd attended them as a pt and i had 180 people to that 
which is pretty fucking impressive. That, that was the first, that first the ever one. event I've ever done. Then I did one in Manchester as well. And to me, for some reason, I was like, oh, if I earn that money, I'll be able to expense it. I didn't even understand basic accounting. Came back to Australia and he messaged me and he goes, you can hold four or 500 people on a live. Actually, in the early days, before Facebook got slammed, Facebook was better than Instagram up until January 2018. And that's when the algorithm got shunted so creators would go to Instagram. I think peak viewing, I had about two, two and a half thousand people on a live when I was doing my Q&As in the morning, which is insane. And this is at a 50,000 or maybe even 30, 40, 50,000 following on Facebook. So to have that as a percentage of your following on a live, he very simply said to me, if you can hold people on their smartphone for half an hour, you would do a lot better on stage. So I come back in 2018, I sit down with Luke. He goes, how do you feel about a UK tour? And I was like, okay. He goes, what do you think of these 12 venues and these dates? I said, okay. He goes, good, because we've already booked them. And I was like, oh, sound. Is, is that where most of your audience is? Yeah, it's still 70, 80% UK. And so he goes, cool. We got to the first event in Cardiff, Tramshed, maybe June, May, June 2018. I didn't know what I was doing. And he kind of, he, his first time I had a green room. There was alcohol in it. Darren came. He gave Darren a microphone. And he was like, what'd you do? He's like, just do your thing. He's like, you didn't plan nothing. You just wing it. Just winged it the first one. Just chatting absolute shit. Got smashed. <laughs> Got smashed with them. Literally, it was a big piss up. And we had a good night. Then we went out with them afterwards. Massive piss up. Went into a bar. Then he was like, you kind of going to want to structure it a little bit better. So we structure it a little bit better. Then we did Leeds. We did Manchester. We did this. We did that. And we would average probably, I don't know, 50 to 60, 70 people. And for some people, they came along just for a meet and greet, go out, get selfies, get pissed. It was actually more like a night out with me than anything else. So Luke was very smart to pick venues where they do gigs, where there's a bar, where people get alcohol. So we did the first tour, probably lost 30 or 40 grand. And Really? Yeah. It was a loss? Oh, yeah, massive loss in the beginning. But again, Luke goes, everyone that came tonight, hopefully next time they'll bring a friend, maybe two friends. Was that because it just didn't, they didn't sell out? Yeah, we just had massive venues and just didn't have that many people. Oh, okay. The capacity for 400 people. And then we had travel, costs, hotels, all of this. And Luke and I are insane. We're the only people that will spend £1,000 on travel to go sign 50 books. Mm. So for my events just gone, we went from London to Manchester to do a Waterstone signing, to then go to stay in Manchester overnight, come down to Bristol to do a signing, to then go to Cardiff to do an event. And we signed about 75 books between all that travel and hotels and staying around. If you're insane enough to do that to sign books, on paper, you've spent £1,000, you've made £60 in royalties. But the relationships you have with those people, because they know you're in Cardiff tomorrow night and they know you've come to Manchester to see them, to put a squiggle in their book. Again, more of reciprocity. They'll remember that. And all the events, he goes, don't worry. Next time they come back, they'll bring a friend. So we got the book deal. And probably the book deal helped because they, fucking hell, James has just done a UK tour, 12 events. Losing that £30,000 was one of the best investments because the publishers saw that when we did the deal. Oh, yeah, James just did a UK tour. Are any of your other authors in the fitness industry doing a UK tour? No, I didn't think so. Cool. So then we wrote the book. And again, we go, okay, why don't we take elements of the book and bring them to life on the tour? So we did not a diet book, fitness book. We then did another UK tour that probably broke even the first book one. We're at the Clapham Grand, 550 people sold out. And I'm doing a not a diet book live show. Uh, we actually did some Christmas shows in between, which were crazy. But for this one, imagine a, a topic like the menstrual cycle, which is a big topic for women, whatever. I would make it funny. I'd have a few drinks and I would talk to the men in the crowd. 
And I'd be like, hey guys, this is the menstrual cycle. You've got it wrong. Let me tell you. I'd be like, this is ovulation. If you ever want to do some freaky shit with your missus, probably the best time. Her testosterone's at the highest. I was like, if you ever want to, you know, have a bit of bum fun, it's probably the best time. <laughs> Not to mention she's ovulating at this time. So that means she's more likely to get pregnant. Remember, guys, if you can't come in here, come on up. Like, you know, and oh, ho, 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 you know. And then another bit. So I'd be like, oh, so you think the period's the bad time in the month? Let me tell you why you're wrong. Look, this is PMS. If you've got a lad's trip, this is not when to tell your missus. So I would actually take important topics out of the book and make them a bit more fun. And doing so, you could create a live show with people. And then the tours we did since, and we did the Not A Life Coach talk, and that was one that was a lot more serious, where I had two hours to convince people, life's too short to have a job you don't enjoy. And the fact that a lot of people need help with dieting because they hate their relationship and they hate their job. But bringing something to life like the sunk cost fallacy where people remain invested in something based off their previous investment, not so much how they feel about it. You've probably got friends that, why are you still dating that dude? He's an asshole. Oh, we've been together six years. They're using the six years they've already invested as a reason not to get out. Same reason people are still holding on to Bitcoin. Oh, you know, I've, I've done gone this far. It seems tragic to sell it. So that was the first talk I had where I could actually get people in the crowd to break up with their partners. And again, it was like a sieve. I shake the sieve. If you leave, you're like, no, I'm in a great relationship. Cool. But a lot of people would have heard me. I would have looked them in the eyes and gone, if you're in a relationship and your first reason to stay is the amount of time you've invested, you need to get out. If you're not in a job you enjoy, if you're having sick days when you're not sick, you're in the wrong job. So then the second tour, I actually, I closed the second tour with something called the end of history illusion where every single human being up until this point in time doesn't think they'll change. So if I was to ask you how much you're going to change in the next five, 10 years, the illusion is you don't think a lot. You think maybe a bit of my tastes, my feelings, blah, 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 but I'll be the same person just 10 years older. And this is the craziest thing that humans will believe. So to close the show, we played some Hans Zimmer, we dimmed the lights. And I say to people, the only way to fully appreciate how much your life can change in the next 10 years is to look at how much you've changed in the last 10 years. And only by looking at the 10 years that have gone before you can you truly appreciate your potential for the next 10 years. And to close a, speech, a talk on that, people go, fuck, I never thought of it that way. Telling someone and giving them two hours of clips like that and then getting them to walk away thinking that their potential in the future is much higher than it's ever been for a £35 ticket. Again, next time we release a book, they'll buy the book. Next time we do a tour, we do the tour. So the venues just got bigger. It was only really the last tour and this tour where we started making money. So now people see selling out Hammersmith Polo, three and a half thousand people in a room. They go, wow. oh, fuck. Yeah. When, when, I, when I see some of the pictures you posted on social media, with you on the stage, with thousands of people behind you, I'm like, this guy is like the real deal. I and never, no, I no doubt everybody that sees that is automatically like, wow, well, he must be good. Like, I, I need to go to the next one. Some of them, the, in the early days, they weren't that great. But I'm so grateful to the people that gave me the time of day in, in the beginning. Mm. And again, now we're, we're kind of, there is a bit of pressure because for me, I do stress about it. I've got one tonight. Then we've got like 1,500 people at the... Is that tonight? Yeah, Dubai Active. Like my biggest, my biggest concern, I want every single person to leave there going, that was, way, that was worth way more than what I paid. Mm. And also, I like to think with the books they go, oh, that's better than I thought. And I want that to be the same for the talk. So, you know, 
Imagine if I said to you, I'm going to give you someone two hours to change their mind on something. You should be able to do it. And then can you be funny and engaging at the same time? Oh, it's going to get a little bit harder. Can you put jokes into it and have crass remarks? So the show changes week to week as well. And some things work, some things don't. Sometimes I add stuff, sometimes take it out. It actually becomes a bit like a, a comedy skit in some respects where you've got timing, you've got jokes, you've got other things. And I don't think anyone's ever taken the market of mixing stand-up and a TED Talk together. And that's mm. kind of the beauty to it. And one thing that's really pretty... We sat on the sofa a few floors above last night. And I sat with the boys and I was like, I was like, what the fuck? I was like, we always said, when we sell at the Hammersmith Apollo, we'll celebrate. We didn't. When we get a million followers, we'll celebrate. We didn't. When I get my Australian PR... I even joked saying, even if it's eight in the morning, I'll get so smashed that I'll shit myself. I said all these things. We didn't do it. As soon as we sold out the Hammersmith Apollo, I was like, what about O2? Can we do a half arena? When I got my Australian residency, I was like, oh, I'd be sick when I get my passport. When we have done these events and these shows and everything, we never stopped for a second and actually appreciate where we're at. And we actually, last night, were like, this is a problem. In the last two weeks, I met Hasbullah, Dizzy Rascal. I met Jason Derulo yesterday morning. Yeah, you've been on you've been on a mad one since you've been here. Like, yeah, I've been watching these stories. I'm like, man, he's like doing more than me. It's fucking insane, mate. And like, the the Hasbullah story was the funniest. Duran messages me on Friday, uh, Thursday night. He goes, I need to go see my family. I haven't seen them in ages. Do you want to go to Istanbul tomorrow? I was like, yeah. I woke up at 10 a.m. I was like, are we going today? And he's like, oh, you know, he's so fucking disorganized. I was like, I booked the 12:50 you need to leave now to get to the airport on time. So we flew to Istanbul and uh, really random, we went to Nusret and one of his footballer mates helped us get in. We started to wait for an hour being on the guest list, but the food was amazing and it's expensive here, right? Mm. Over there, we got the golden tomahawk, golden burgers, booze, everything. The whole meal was 450 quid. You can't even get the steak alone for that. Yeah, it's an absolute ripoff. So I was like, so we did that. Then we were so full of food. I was like, let's get a cab. We got a cab. Then the driver refused to drive us any further because there was traffic. So we got out and I said, let's just walk. And it's a one hour walk. 45 minutes into that one hour walk. I look to my left. Hasbullah is just standing there outside a club on his own. I'll freeze. I, got, I was like, Duren, it's Hasbullah. Duren just goes in. What's up, bruv? How's it going? Do you mind if we get a quick pick? Boom, boom. Then the security come, all these big fucking Russian guys. And I was like, if we didn't get kicked out of the cab, if we didn't wait an hour for Nusret, if we didn't do all those things, we would never have met him. Mm. And I was like, what the fuck is that? What's going on in the world? Yeah, life is mad sometimes. It is, but like, um, I need to work harder or appreciate it. Mm. Do you ever get that as well? Yeah. But I feel like I did that, particularly in the summer of 2020, when I turned 30, I was like, right, I'm, I'm going to have a good summer. I'm going to celebrate life. And I tried my best, considering, you know, the situation was great with all lockdowns and everything. I still had a good time when I beat there. And then I did it again last year, 2021, where I, I kind of graft when I'm in Dubai. And then over the summertime, I just chill, relax and enjoy life. And I think I, I got to the point where I overdid it and I over-celebrated and I just wasn't really doing much work. I was not fulfilling my potential. I feel like I didn't have a purpose. And I was like, okay this is something which I don't really want to do anymore. So now when it comes to celebrating, I, I save it for the for the right moments when I've achieved a certain goal. Because I think that's, that's what life is about. 
Like you, you can't just work, work, work and not have any fun and have a good time. So I've come back to Dubai. I've set myself some goals. Once I've achieved those goals, I'm going to celebrate pretty damn hard once I achieve them. And I think one thing I've noticed as well is if I know there's something to be done and I'm not working towards it and I'm out, I'm at a club or I'm on a boat or whatever, I can't fully enjoy myself because I'm thinking in the back of my mind like, like there's work to be done and you're here just fucking around. Like get back to work. Once you've done the work and you've achieved what you need to achieve, then go and have fun on the boat party. I'm the same. I have it on a, a micro and a macro scale. So for today, before this podcast, I was like... I need to go for a walk, I need to sit down, I need good coffee, I need to clear my inbox. If I haven't cleared my inbox and I'm sat on a podcast, I'm like, why the fuck did you come to the podcast without doing that? Mm. Work to be done, do a marketing email, do the podcast, relax. But then on another big scale, Australia is probably my Dubai. In Australia, I love my life outside of work so much that if you took away alcohol, partying, all of that, I'd be completely fine. If you said, James, you can't drink, and you can't drink for a year, where are you going to go? I'd say Australia. Because... I wake up, I go for a swim in the sea with my girlfriend, and then she'll drop me to the office. I'll sit with my business partner for the app. We'll work in an office. Then the evening, my old housemates used to come home. One's a builder. He'd finish at four. I'd like be like, hey, let's go for another swim because I've got jiu-jitsu this evening. I need to wake up, go train jiu-jitsu, come back, order a healthy takeaway online, comes, eat that, go to sleep, repeat. When I leave that, I gain weight, I put on fat, I'm out of routine. I'm, I have been living out of suitcase for three months. So I can't wait to get back to Australia to mm. unpack. But when I, I do the same, I want to go into work mode, then I want to escape it. And for me, even I struggle to work at home because I need to go somewhere to do something. Like even though our apartment upstairs is amazing, I need to go to a coffee shop because I have purpose there. I'm here to do emails, blah, blah, blah. If I catch myself on TikTok, I'm like, that's not why you're here. The sofa upstairs is for TikTok, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm the same. Even last night, we like eat some food, we have a beer. I was like, I haven't earned this. You know, fair enough, we've had a big week or whatever. After And today as well, um, I get a bit more serious on the day of the event. I'm like, there are a lot of people I could let down if I fuck up. I don't drink before the events anymore. Uh, I didn't, I want to make sure, last night I was sleep stressing. I was like doing the maths. I was like, okay, I need to go to sleep at this time so that I can wake up, have a full night's sleep. And then you, you stress out because you don't yeah. get sleep which you're supposed to get. And then that means you can't, it's... it's it's late, like three in the morning, you still have me to sleep. Yeah, and then I'm and then I'm annoyed, and then I'll manifest the tired symptoms because I didn't sleep. But yeah, I'm very much the same where I need to get work done. As I'm getting a bit older. Are you 32? 32? 32. So I'm 33. Now my values have changed. That productivity is now one of my my most sacred things. I'd rather have a productive week because productivity makes me happy. So yeah. then when people want to drink and party or whatever, and I do it and then I feel like shit, it's actually affecting my productivity, which is affecting my happiness. And then we've gone back into that. I'm now having more happy, uh, having more pleasure and it's affecting my happiness. I don't like that. So then I need to bring the shift back, bring the pleasure right down, right? And bring the happiness back up, be productive, do work stuff. And now it's not even like a monetary thing. I just want to go to bed at night knowing that I've done everything to a good standard. Like sometimes I'll make like a YouTube video I'm not, I don't care if this gets any views. I really enjoyed making it. Yeah. And when you can kind of remove yourself a bit from stuff like that, that's what I really enjoy and, and I cherish. It's crazy though that you, we're obviously both very hyper-competitive males and it's very strange what makes us happy at this level. And we would probably understand each other to such an extent, but so many people just wouldn't, wouldn't get it. Mm. I, I feel like one thing that makes me happy is doing something that is 
hard and challenging or something which I kind of I'm, I'm scared of doing or didn't really want to do. And that moment I've done it or I've accomplished it, I feel amazing. Like when I've, if I've been on a podcast or I'm doing a podcast, at the end of the podcast, I feel great. Cause I'm like, that was a fucking, that was a good conversation. And it's, I know it's going to go out there to the world for everyone to hear. And that, that's just kind of being created out of thin air. And it's the same thing with my, with my YouTube channel. Every time I, I've gone out and maybe I've made a video where I'm like, oh, this is going to be a lot of work. Or I'm going to be doing like a collaboration with someone who's like quite famous. I get nervous. But once I've done it and the video has been put together, I'm, just, I'm so proud of it that the moment I press publish, I feel so happy. And when I've gone through periods of time, particularly in Ibiza, when I wasn't, I wasn't doing really any work, I wasn't creating anything, and I wasn't even doing anything hard or challenging. Life was just too easy. I would literally wake up, do whatever I wanted to do, and just live a life of pure hedonism. And that, although it's good, I mean, don't get me wrong, but too much of that makes you, it will start to make you unhappy. We, um, after we sold out Hammersmith Apollo, usually I don't drink after the events, I'm like a bit tired. Uh, my mum and dad came to that event, it was their first event as well. So it was very strange to be in my work environment, my mum and dad's come. My dad was shitting himself. Like, they don't even have social media. My dad only got Facebook this year to watch my stories. And, and I find it the same. <laughs> and now I'll post stuff, I'm like, fuck, my dad's going to do that. <laughs> And uh, afterwards, like, I kind of looked at Luke and Duran and I was like, we could do anything we wanted tonight. We go to the box, we get a table. We could splash fucking huge amounts of money because I'm just trying to do the maths. For Hammersmith Polo, you're looking at six figures for a night's work, which is mad when I used to be on a basic salary of 12 grand as a door knocker. So you look at that, we go, we could do anything tonight. But I go, nothing will make me as happy as doing a good show. Did the good show backstage i'm sat there i'm like there's nothing else we can do tonight and we all kind of appreciate that i was like there's no club no bottles no sparklers that can top this whereas mm. maybe james of 10 years ago that would have been the highlight we're, we're kind of moving the things now where you have a high performing video when the algorithm picks it up you're like oh, that makes me so much happier than the booze yeah. and the party in the clubs and it's crazy we're almost finding a new drug that makes us happy but this drug as well is more congruent with a good life because eventually we're going to settle down we're going to have kids and the party lifestyle, they're not going to be able to, to live or coexist with that. So it's very good that our values are now shifting into something that we can preserve for a bit longer, where you have a wife and kids and you're like, hey, I need a couple hours on my own to do something. I'm doing videos, I'm doing vlogs, whatever. And then you can actually have that success and the values that you enjoy whilst living the, the kind of good life. I think it's good that those values do change. When I see older people partying a lot, I don't know, I get really mixed feelings about it. You know, especially out here, there'll be some <laughs> 40, 50-year-old guys like... On a table with like five brass. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> what's going on? I'm, like, I'm really hope I'm not like that when I'm 45. <laughs> yeah. I think we're kind of in a similar situation because I'm 32, you're 33. You want to have kids at some point. I want to have kids at some point. I've no idea when. And you, I think for the first time in a while, you're you're now in a long-term relationship, or at least yeah. it's, been like, it's been a year. Yeah, over a year. Yeah, so similar thing with me. And I think one of the things which I, I don't know if you get this as well, that I struggle with is because once you become a person who has status, you are someone, you've got respect, you're making money, you get offers all the time from women. Do you find it hard 
sort of saying no or ignoring it? Or do you find it's now that you're with this person, you like them, it's actually not that much of a problem? I'm definitely in a very good relationship that like, serves me really well. Whereas, I'll be honest, when I was younger, 26, 27, I'd try and eat, have my cake and eat it. I joke with Duran now. Duran's got a much smaller following. I go, enjoy it, mate. Because this is a really funny thing. As my following grew, the DMs became less. At 100k, I was a lot more accessible. I'd get way more nudes at 100k than I did at a million. So, you know, I joke around with my missus now. I'm like, that's oh, right. I'd, I'd barely get any nudes. I was like, but if you met me at 300k, whoa, yeah. you're in trouble. So, yeah, and, and to be honest, it, it's not as crazy as it, as it used to be. And that's why I kind of like being semi-public about being in a relationship. But the internet are crazy. They are malicious horrible people that this is this is the thing like i have i've done it before this was two years ago i was very public about my relationship my girlfriend was all over the vlogs she was everywhere and she didn't mind she was cool with it but what i found was weird was that everybody knew my business every like and i thought my life was very public as it is doing the vlogs now i'm being very public with my relationship and during the relationship was fine maybe every now and then she gets some weird messages weird stalkers but when we broke up that was when it was a problem because everybody kept asking me like, oh, what's going on? What's going on when you go? What's going on? Like all the YouTube comments, all my in my inbox. Same thing with her, bless her. Like she's obviously, we're both trying to move on, do our own thing. And everybody is just bombarding us with messages asking what is going on. And even some of the weird people that follow me, like I, I was in Ibiza, I was moving on, having fun. I was at boat parties, whatever. People would send my stories and send them to her and be like, oh, look what Mike's doing. And that's an evil thing because they know that's going to make her feel like shit. Yeah. So they are maliciously in, intending that. I've had them where I'll be at the ship in Wandsworth and Luke will pick up a thread online on like Reddit or something. Oh, uh, look here, Diren is trying to coerce an underage girl into having sex. I'm like, that's my best mate's pregnant wife. She's 33. She's not underage. She's clearly pregnant. He's got his arm around her because it's winter. You know, like, I'm like, Someone's going to read that. And then someone commented or like on the, the thread underneath, classic Duran. I'm like, the first bit isn't true, let alone the second bit. And I'm like, looking at the picture, I'm like, those, I'm sure they were the girls that asked us for a selfie as well. So I'm like, not only did someone take a selfie, they then went on the internet and started an untrue thread. I was like, oh, fucking hell. And it is difficult because you've got to kind of manage this. There are going to be psychos. And it takes one hell of a woman to accept that. And, you know, we are in a very strange situation in life where you're like... I want to date you. I want to be completely honest with you, but there is dysfunction to it. And it mm. is a dysfunction that is very difficult. So it, it takes a real high caliber of woman to accept that. Um, yeah, I think even I, I, I realize, realize this myself. Like I am not an easy person to date with the lifestyle that I have, the, the, the social media following. And even with one of my businesses, the clothing business, now I've launched bikinis, I'm going off to places overseas doing campaigns with a load of hot girls, it's like the person who I'm with has to be very secure and has to really trust that I'm doing the right thing. And yes. it's, it's, it's difficult. I'd like, I'd, I say to them, it's not going to be easy. I did a, I, I really wanted this relationship to work. So I, in the early stages, I actually was very open about completely getting everything off my chest and being like, this is what I'm like, this is it. I even read a book called Attached, mm. about attachment styles and i i'm very avoidant especially that 
if I sometimes I try and keep other people happy, so to do that, I spend too much time with them. But then by spending too much time with them, I actually have put myself in a position where I'm not doing what I want, which makes me resent them. So when I resent them a bit, I space myself away from them. But as you, if you date someone who's slightly anxious and you resent them a little bit, they sense it and they become overly anxious. So now they want more from you. And because you're like, well, you're, you're wanting too much from me, you space yourself further. And then your relationship blows up. So in the early stages, I was like, hey, I'm pretty avoidant. When I need space, it's nothing personal. I just feel very claustrophobic if I'm spending too much time with someone. Then I said to her as well, hey, got crazy followers. Here are some of my DMs. And even little things now that really help. So I said to you before, when I make content, I need to edit it straight away. So when I get an idea, she'll now say to me, let's film it now. I'm like, do you mind? She's like, no, no, I'll hold the camera. And sometimes it's a really selfish thing. She'll stop what she's doing to help me because she knows that helps me kind of be happy. Yeah, that's really good, that. Yeah, and I, and I say to her as well, I'm like, I'll, I'll be good in this relationship because she's actually going out of way to help me, but then that makes me feel so inclined to do it back for her. And then she'll literally be like, do your edit? I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, cool, thank you. Then I get the edit out. Now she's like, how's it performing? How's it going? I really like this. Now she's coming up with ideas for content for me. So I'll say, I want to do this later. She's like, why don't you do this? And I'm like, oh, that's a good one. And now we're having fun making content together. We're actually having quality time together doing things that I've never really done with a partner. And that to me is really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Whereas if people don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, they can just end up resenting you for it. And yeah, this is the definitely the healthiest relationship I've been in. And the best thing I ever did was really take stock of my faults and just lay them out. Because I think too many people, especially myself when I was younger, I tried living a life where I was trying to portray someone that didn't have faults. And it was the most dangerous thing I ever did for a relationship. Yeah, I think one thing that they in many previous relationships they, they they didn't understand and I didn't make clear enough at the beginning was obviously I'm busy but I, I really enjoy spending time by myself like I think I'm probably more of an introverted person I there's nothing that makes me happier than just literally just being by myself going around walking chilling at home whatever it might be and even if I'm in a relationship and I really do love that person if I'm constantly spending time with them it starts to make you know like you said it makes you feel claustrophobic like I need to just go off and just be by myself for a bit and there's been times where I've been in relationships where they've they've not understood that like they they're the type of people that would need to be in a relationship where they're with their partner all the time doing everything together go to the gym together work together sleep together you know stay over every single night and I, I, I very quickly realized that okay if they're that type of person then we're probably not going to get along it's a compatibility thing and again the real test for me was going on holiday with my girlfriend where we would spend loads of time together we're actually fine but i love the fact that if i give her an inclination that i want to work she just leaves me to it Mm. like and that's why my routine in australia is so great because we both have our own lives then we come together afterwards both have our own lives we come together uh, afterwards and again i feel in this as well we're both so responsible for our own levels of happiness and that's such a great thing because I've been with people other in some relationships where they feel or you feel like you're responsible for theirs. And having the line of work we live in, I've definitely become more introverted the last few years where now extroversion uh, fatigues me mm. quite heavily. And there's nothing I like more than just being alone on my laptop for a few hours, being creative. When I get like a few hours in the afternoon on my own, that's when if I'm thinking of something for Instagram or TikTok, I'll potter about, I'll do stuff, I'll clean up, I'll fold clothes. 
my thing is I go have a warm shower on my own, just chilling. And I play music or whatever. And I just think about ideas for content and I come out. But if there's someone too much in your life, you can't be creative. Yeah. You need that time to be alone and be creative. But then what I find is that it's so crazy being such a productivity person. I can't watch a film on my own. If you wanted to make me depressed, you find a Sunday afternoon and me watching TV on my own. That would kill me. But when I bring another person in to do it and we do it together and we have some food and do it, it's heaven. So it's crazy. The sofa, the TV can be hell for me or heaven, depending on how I look at it. And when I'm single or where I have been single, the worst thing is I don't switch off because I've got no reason to. I can't just put my phone down and watch TV because I could be tweeting. I could be getting in Twitter wars. I could be making TikTok videos. I become work obsessive and heavily fatigued. Whereas when I'm in a relationship and I suddenly have that way of being able to relax, switch off, go to the cinema, things like that, it actually then plays into making me a better productive person. It's crazy because this is something which I've experienced recently. I don't know whether it's because it's the, the, the start of me doing the podcasts and I'm trying to just do more. I'm finding it very difficult to switch off at nighttime. Like when I, when I literally lie down and I go to bed, then all like my, my mind is racing. And even sometimes when I'm doing a podcast, or if I'm going to go on a podcast, I can't help but visualize what the conversation is going to be like and what questions I'm going to be asking. But when I sleep with my partner, if she stays with me or I stay with her, the moment I get into bed and she's just talking about something, I'm like, boom, I'm out cold. <laughs> sure. Some people report on their whoops that they uh, get better recovery sleeping with their partner. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, I like listening to podcasts when I fall asleep for that reason that I can take my mind off. I'm listening to one, a guy on Rogan at the moment talking about uh, the jet pilots who encountered like alien because mm-hmm. you got Commander Fravor was the big one. So it's basically a guy talking about UFOs in San Diego. I'm only 40 minutes into this and it's put me to sleep the last 10 nights. I find it so intriguing that I relax and fall asleep. Yeah. So I listen to podcasts now when I fall asleep to the point that when I came back to the UK, my missus was like, have you, have you heard this latest Rogan episode? I listen to Rogan so much when I fall asleep. She now does it when she's away from me to help her fall asleep. Me, that's my favorite way. Like, I used to put on audiobooks. I listened to the whole book of Sapiens just falling asleep. And I now need something to listen to as I fall asleep. But I always just drift off, boom. Sometimes I'll be asleep in like 30 seconds. Very quickly, guys, I just want to ask you a quick question. Are you taking supplements? And if you are, do you have any idea if you're taking the right supplements in the right amounts? You see, the more that I discovered about the importance of micronutrient supplementation and the adverse health effects of micronutrient deficiencies, I would constantly ask myself the same thing. I would go into supplement stores, load up on bottles of micronutrients and pop pills daily without really knowing if they were doing me any good or not. That's when I decided to try out Bionic. Since 2021, I've been getting my blood work done with them every three to four months. Once the blood test has been analyzed, they would put together a customized micronutrient formula tailored specifically for me. And this would last me for three to four months until I got my blood work done again. And since then, I've honestly never looked back. If you are also serious about performing at your best, preventing development of diseases and maximizing your overall health and well-being, I highly recommend you give it a try. And they've recently introduced Bionic Go, which is a fraction of the price where all you need to do is just fill in a questionnaire online without the need of a blood test. If you want to find out more, or give them a try, head over to bionic.com, but you can use my exclusive referral code BQMikeThurston for a discount on your first order. Let's get back to the episode. 
Have, have you got any bad habits which you would love to just stop doing or get rid of? Alcohol, probably. Mm. Like, I, I know definitively that alcohol only makes my life worse. Yeah. And you did a video about it recently about your relationship with it, but like, but it's difficult because I also love the time, like having a beer with my friends, sometimes I feel like I'm doing it for them as much as me. Yeah. Even when I, when I think back, some of the funniest times I've had have been on nights out or days where it's just been me and my mates and we've just been pissed and we've been acting like idiots. And again, exactly that. I think it's more so the day after where I feel like shit or just feeling like shit or feeling like you have such a great opportunity in life. Why are you throwing it away boozing? But then I actually thought about this the other day. I go, the only reason I'm, I'm successful is because of who I am and alcohol has been a part of who I am. So I can't try and not be who I am. It, it's a weird one. It is definitely a relationship I have. But that, that probably is the main one. I rarely ever take drugs, which is why I'm so open about it. I was very open as well, especially not having brand deals. I'd talk about cocaine, talk about MDMA. Um, I'd even, but then even then, I only talk about my previous experiences. I got slammed recently on a video where I said, if you want to stop doing coke, stop drinking. Because that's fucking what happened to me. When I was doing too much coke, I was like, all right, I need to stop drinking. Mm. I was like, oh, you can have one or two. I was like, well, the mm. problem is, James after one beer isn't getting a bag in. But James after 10 beers is winking at his mate. But the problem is, James after one beer is very good friends with James of two beers. And James of two beers is, oh, we might as well have a third and so forth. Mm. So there's that, like, uh, again... The amount I drink and party is definitely at a decline, which is probably in a perfect amount of time before whatever future family life comes. But as far as habits, probably forgetting people's names. And sometimes, I don't know, I like to, I probably think I'm more selfish than other people do. Because the reason I'm so happy and I don't struggle with mental health or anything, I actually think boils down to a selfish thing where I'm like, I'm my sleep, non-negotiable. My routine, non-negotiable, mm. all of these things. But because of that, because I'm so adamant about my sleep and my schedule and my work life and everything else, I'm a very happy person. So I'm almost selfishly living life to make other people's lives better. Yeah. What about yourself? What's your, what's your thing? Um, I think procrastination. Do, there's a lot of things which I know I should be doing that I don't do and I... I I will just put off. I will come up with excuses why I don't need to do it today. I'll be like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. And I will fill my day with still doing tasks, but not the main most important task that needs to be done. Like scrolling on TikTok or something. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to me, that's, that's that is, I, I will openly say I'm, I'm addicted to my phone. Like mm. I, I hate it. I'm, tr I'm trying to figure out ways of, uh, I've done it uh, where there's like a timer where I can only spend a certain amount of time on Instagram. Because the jobs which we have, it involves social media. So I will go on social media, whether it be to send a message or to do a post. And then I, I will get sucked in to this wormhole of content, content which I didn't even choose to see, but this, the, the algorithm has just shown it to me. And then I, I put my phone down 15 minutes later. And that thing I was supposed to do, I didn't even do. So I've got to pick my phone up again. And... I know what you mean. And again, I move my uh, tiles around on the home screen. So yeah. that my thumb just... Because sometimes I go to an inbox, there's nothing there. Then I'll go back. And then I'm like, oh, I didn't need to do that. But I struggle with that quite a bit as well. And it's another reason I love jujitsu because I can't take my phone with me. Mm. When you do gym training, people always give people shit for being on their phone between sets. I'm like, probably resting the right amount. If you're not touching your phone in the workout, you're probably not resting enough. Mm. And you're probably... 
fatigued way quick. You feel like you're more fatigued than you actually are. The person on the phone on the bench press is probably having two and a half minute rest. Probably yeah. so he can maintain the right RPE for his workout. So I do that as well. Sometimes I get my phone out. I'm like, oh, we'll have a proper rest here. And it's been 10 minutes. So yeah. actually, to be fair, I'm the same. The, the thing is, though, with our line of work, it's very easy to excuse our actions mm. and to guise them. Like, oh, I work online. What? So you can be a fo- fucking phone addict. And again, Luke, probably his screen time is like nine to 12 hours a day. During the same. And sometimes our quality time is just three of us sat on the sofa just scrolling. Yeah. Which is pretty bad but again i'm sure that procrastination will be negated when you have kids yeah because that's a very different thing altogether have have you thought about an ideal age where you have kids you always do it in reverse don't you you're always like fuck okay if i have kids in two years i'll be that old then you're like fuck two years though i could do Mm -hmm. a lot in two years because i i i don't i want kids but i don't want to be an old dad this and I don't it. want to have kids with the wrong person. Yeah, and you're better off late than early, I think. Mm. But then I always worry about fertility. I'm like, fuck, what if I'm 35 and they go, oh, sorry, your swimmers are a bit slow. Oh, mm. fuck, maybe I did party too much. Yeah. Too many days at Nikki Beach, Blue Marlin, fuck. Um, so there's that. I do joke with my existing girlfriend at the moment, and she's like, I need two more seasons in netball. So there's two more seasons. But then again, that stresses How me out straight she? away. 28. Okay, yeah. So like... There's definitely no stress with that. But then I was chatting to Stephen Bartlett about this. He goes, no one has kids and goes, I wish I did it two years later. Mm. Many of them go, oh, it was perfect time. And I don't think there ever is the perfect time. But you're right. Compatibility is the main thing that you need. And you're better off being a few years late, but with the right person. Because it's a big commitment. It's a big commitment. You know? How, I, like, how, how do you think you know this is the right person? Because... I have been in relationships in the past where there's been times where I'm like, this is the one. I was 26. I was in love. And I I was convinced at that point in time I was going to marry her. But then, I mean, maybe there was just a few red flags. Because sometimes when, you, when you're in love, you, you, you don't think rationally and you're just thinking purely on emotions. But then I think when, when the emotions kind of, they calmed down a little bit, I started to think more rationally. And then I was like, actually, this is probably not a good idea for me and she'll probably be very happy me saying this i'm not just in love with the person i'm in love with the life Mm. and going back to australia being in australia uh having that i'm I'm almost when i look at the future it's not just how i think of the kids i think about a dog i think about living near the beach i think about my kids potentially having their fondest memories being chucked in the sea by their dad like and i think about that a lot so it's crazy. Where I have been in London, single, let's say a couple of years ago when I had to come back for work and I was there for six months, I'd date people. And even if I liked them, I was like, I do not want a life with you. It was a crazy thing. It was like a buffer. After living in Australia for a year and visas are so difficult to get, I was just going on dates like with no interest because I knew there was zero chance that they, it would work out. Mm. And it was weird. I could then only date in Australia because that's where I want my future to be. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. But for me, I get excited by it. I'm looking forward to doing it. I'm excited to do it. In, I, I mentioned this in a few podcasts, but being adopted, I've never seen a blood relative. So everyone's got family and features they can see in people, but I've never had that. Mm. So I'm very intrigued to see the relationship of my kids. Like, I think I'll be a good dad. I think yeah, I'll be a good father. Be good but like, I might love them too much. Mm. I might be like, oh, come here. <laughs> Don't go away from me. <laughs> but no, it's... Um, 
it's it's an interesting. I'm really excited for it. But I, the same, I, I think it would be it would be a life changer for me. Obviously, if I have a boy or a girl, but I think having a girl, because I I grew up uh, in a household where there was no women. Uh, I didn't. I had one brother. I had my dad. My mum passed away when I was eleven. So it was a very sort of masculine household. And I think apart from relationships, I haven't had that experience of having a female in my life like that. So if I have a daughter, I think it would just be so new and strange, but interesting. So uh, again, my manager, he's, he's always like rubbing his eyes. He's like, don't have kids. Like, you know, he's always saying to me, I'll wake up. I'm like, slept nine and a half hours. He's like, we well, fucking kiss that guy when you have kids. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's double-edged sword to it, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You know, he's doing a good job, Matt. I think Matt is a great, he's a great dad. Yeah, 100%. Good role model for everyone else who's, you know, thinking about raising a family or having kids. I think I, he's doing it right. I always forget until I see it in content. I'm like, oh shit, you're a dad. Because yeah. to me, he's just YouTube and Matt. Yeah, two kids as well. Fuck. That's crazy. Yeah, but think of the content. That's why I'm going to blow up my YouTube. Well, that's, that's what his YouTube blew up when he started doing these intros with Luca, uh, his youngest son at the time. He was telling me, you used to spend like half a day or sometimes a full day just putting together this intro. But nobody else had ever done anything like it. And that that was at the point where his channel just it was going crazy. Like every every video was getting like a million views. It was we were par on par. We had about eight hundred k, and then he just went boom, and then just like his subscribers doubled mine. And I was yeah. like, "Fuck, I need to have a kid." <laughs> <laughs> Not just for business, but a little bit for business. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, you've got to sell me on Australia because I've never been. So, uh, I would say go and then see what you think. Again, you could always come back, but coffee is amazing. Best coffee I've ever had. I didn't realize I was a coffee fan, so I went there. But it, the lifestyle is a little bit lazy there. And um, again, this was a great thing. When I went to PT there, no one else was really doing anything kind of outside the box. The franchise I started working with were going out with a clipboard and trying to get people's email addresses on their lunch break. And I was like, just set up a squeeze page, paid mm-hmm. advertising. I was like, they were a little, it sounds bad to say it, they were a tiny bit backwards or maybe 10 years behind the UK. But then after a while, I was like, I love that. My mates who went out there to work go, you don't get an email at weekends or after 5 p.m. because they're living life. But some days I'll get a coffee from a coffee shop. There'll be a young guy with curly hair behind, surfer guy, and their coffee shops are open from like 5.30, 6 a.m. Is this Sydney? Sydney, anyway, Gold Coast, first thing in the morning, get a coffee. And I'll look at that surfer guy and I'll go, fuck. I bet he's going to work from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. He's going to earn enough money to pay for his rent. Probably then go to go for a walk with his dog and surf in the afternoon and go to bed. And I was like... Such a chilled life. I was like, fuck, he could do that forever. And he probably will never own a home or probably never fly business class, but he's going to have one of the best fucking lives that ever existed. And going there was a real reality check for me where... I even remember a few years ago, I was having a steak in a restaurant in Manly, really nice part of Sydney. And I thought, if it doesn't work out, I should come get a job here or serve tables in the evening. 6 p.m. to midnight every night. Again, probably enough money and tips, whatever, to pay it. I was like, during the day, I could get a dog, learn to surf and train jiu-jitsu. That could be my life. Yeah. Worst case scenario, if you ever get cancelled, I know where you'll be. Yeah. And I, I honestly, now I've probably got enough savings to open a jiu-jitsu gym. Mm. I could go full-time teaching jiu-jitsu and spend the rest of the day on the beach. And there are so many people living that existence in Australia that it really motivated me to just create a good life. And when the pandemic happened, it was the first place I went. I didn't go home to my family. I was in Bali. I was like, I'm going to Australia. And it sounds fucked. I actually quite enjoyed lockdown. Because I went for walks. I'd run coastal roads by the sea. I'd go in parks. And even just 
the nature there, the it doesn't get that dark in winter. It doesn't get that bright in summer. Me and my friends, in what world do you get a group text the night before going, summarize swim lads? And yeah. nine of you go to the beach 5.45 to watch the sun come up. There's, there's nowhere else in the world where that happens. And it is Peter Pan world. It is a bubble. It is mm. safe. It is one of those places where I got there and I was like, I get it. And people are, it, it's not perfect by any means. Where I live in Bondi on the beach is 15 minute train from the city. The train's always empty. My rent is cheap. Petrol's cheap. It's like one pound a litre for petrol in Australia. The train costs near to nothing. I can skateboard into the city from where I am. The city's not big. It's not crowded. The spiders are pretty big. Oh, yeah. The, the huntsmen, which are the biggest ones, the harmless ones, but they eat and kill the ones that are dangerous. And for me, it's just... And they're in every city? Everywhere. The, oh. I've never run into like the real gnarly ones. But like, I just think to myself, what a place. My only concern is maybe it's too good to bring up kids. They have to go spend a well, few months in London. Be in a bubble. Yeah. Bring them up somewhere. And I do up. think that is genuine, but for the time being, I imagine myself like a plant. I need to put it in the best environment. Mm. And on paper, all the best things that have happened are in Oz. I write my books in Australia. I make the best content in Australia. The time zone's sick because when I wake up, it's the evening. Yeah, and the UK go to sleep and I can do what I want for the day. I'm left alone. And then in the evenings, I get more messages. And I'm like, I'll do it in the morning. Mm. wrap it up anyway yeah I man I need to go Let's see. I was planning to go in I think 2020 and then obviously Australia just shut the borders for like two years it's 14 hours which is obviously a bit shit but if you ever have a week that's free I'll well, plan. I, feel, I feel like I'd, I'd need to do a month if I went there do a month okay if you have a month I'll tell you where to fly into where to go what hotels to stay in what gyms to train at I'll do your itinerary for you um, I've got quite a lot of. I look at my, where my followers are from. There's a lot from Australia, mate. Then you, this is your this is your vlog. Yeah. Think of it. I'm going to Australia, and then you could do a vlog of every place you go. Yeah, it's just endless content. Because the problem, the problem with, I've been in Dubai now for three years. I've done everything here. Mm. And even some people are saying, "Look, like oh, yeah, we're bored of the Dubai content now." I need to go for a quick piss. Mm-hmm. Oh, just down there on the right. So I started sweating from needing to leave. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been so far? Uh, one, 40. wrap up. Melbourne's a bit more metropolitan. Uh, Sydney has a mixture of everything. So it's all in one place. You've got beaches, you've got city, you've got food. People can be a bit pretentious. But if you have British friends, you're usually fine. And the food's amazing. Like breakfast, there's no chains of restaurants. There's no like one thing size fits all or like a, not like a Nero, Pret, Costa, Starbucks. They don't exist in Australia. They're all individual kind of shops, cafes and restaurants. And then Gold Coast is very beachy, very relaxed. And again, in Gold Coast, for a million pounds, you could probably get a three-bed house with a pool that's half a mile from the beach. Mm. And... People out there, there's loads of dogs. People are outdoors all the time. Sunrise in Bondi is rammed full of people running, walking, having coffee, starting their days. And when I first went there, there was a lockout law where you couldn't get into a bar after midnight. They didn't do shots after 11 in some places. So even a big night out, you'd be home at one. Whereas in the UK, Mm, clubs just go on and go so late. That's when it gets messy. And then 
even when you're hungover as well, you're like, right, oh, let's go down the beach, let's do this. And again, Dubai gets too hot for the majority of the year. Sydney's too hot for maybe one month. And then the rest is like a nine-month spring where coming into summer is amazing, coming out of summer is amazing. August, as it starts to get a little bit cooler, the sea remains a bit warmer. But then winters are really quite nice where it gets down to maybe like six Celsius with highs of maybe 15. But you'd maybe wear a jacket and a hoodie out and about, but at lunchtime you'd be back to a t-shirt and shorts. So the seasons throughout the year, there's no season you want to avoid. And then in middle of winter, if you do feel like you need a bit of sun, you come back to UK at summer. You go to Ibiza, do your trips. Mm. And again, when I'm in Ibiza, I'm not missing out on much at home because it's winter. So which month, if, you, if you were to go one month, which month would you go? October, November, or December. December, Christmas is a really good one. Mm. So Christmas in Australia is putting on a pair of Speedos and going down the beach with a cool box, having a few beers with your mates. And we used to call it Orphan's Christmas, where we would, all of the people that are away from home would come together and have like a big dinner together. So that to me was really good. Coming home to the UK for Christmas doesn't feel the same. I almost feel like I'm doing it to keep my family happy. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the reason why I'm going back. And my mum and dad this year, they said, are you going to be home at Christmas? And I didn't really give them an answer. They gave me my presents to take to Australia. So I do. there is obviously the negatives of being far away from home, but I said this to someone yesterday. It's only a day away. Anytime you travel, it's a day. Going from here to London, it's a day you've written off. Going from Australia, it's a day two. You just spend 21 and a half hours on planes. And the part you would be asleep anyway or otherwise, you're just spending on a plane. Mm. And the Emirates route is so straightforward that it's almost a bit of a cop-out where people say it's far away. I get that in the sense, like, how much it costs, but it's it's not that much more expensive than flying from Dubai. I've done the trip to Dubai and back, and if you do it business, it's so much. To go to Australia, return is only like 20%, 30% more. And it doesn't make sense when you look at it as a distance, but there's almost a sense as well, like when the world goes to shit, Australia's just doing its thing. Yeah, it's far away, pretty neutral. But it's, yeah, it's just a, a great place. And there's loads of things that aren't right about it, but for me, it just weirdly fell out home. Yeah. So we'll get you out there. I'll do your itinerary. I'll do everything. Yeah, I think, I guess, probably not this year, but end of end of next year, maybe. When it's a long time away. Gay misses, go out. I reckon you've got to go in the next three months. You've got no reason you can't. There's never been a better time than now. Yeah. Never know. In six months' time, I'll look on YouTube. Your missus is pregnant. You're having a kid. <laughs> settling down. <laughs> can't come to us because it's a bit too far away from my missus. She's pregnant. That is true. And the, make, the freedom I have now, like I, I don't know how much longer I'm going to have it. You could do an overnight flight and you'd be there. You could go for like three, four days and come back. When are you going back? A Sunday night. So this weekend, I can't wait. And the way the birds chirp when I get there, I've got my apartment in Bondi. So I have an apartment with a little balcony, Caesar Harbour Bridge, Sydney Opera House. Uh, can't wait to get back to that. And like, my life's just a bit more chilled there. I have a five-year-old golf R that I bought and I get sand in it. People are sweaty. Me and my mates start playing tennis just to have something to do outside. And like some days I won't even put shoes on. I'll wear flip-flops to jiu-jitsu, train jiu-jitsu, come back, chill in the apartment, go down to the beach, do whatever. And it's just nice to do it that way. So what, what's, what's plans for you next? Have you got any big projects coming up or are you just going to keep doing what you're doing? Finish the tour. So the only one left is Sydney Opera House, which is a pretty cool venue to have. That's the last one that's on sale. So go home this weekend. Got about a month off, maybe three weeks off. 
Then Dirin and Luke come out. We have Sydney Opera House. We have Perth. We have Christchurch in Auckland in New Zealand. Then by the middle of December, I'll be done. No book projects, nothing. And when I say I'll have a month off, I'll just work on my businesses. So the fitness app that I have, uh, James Smith Academy, is something that me and my business partner, who was another PT in the gym, he left because he didn't like people. He just wanted to code websites. It's like, mate, I've got an idea. We built an app from scratch, which I would not recommend to anyone. Yeah, well, I've I've got one. It's a headache. Um, so many bugs come out of nowhere. It's it's bonkers. And I said to my business partner, however much we're spending, never tell me. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know. We put ourselves on some pretty, uh, pretty standard salaries about five years ago, and that's why I live off. And it's still a good amount of money, but it's nothing... I'd never get too big for myself on that amount of money, where I still feel the pinch when I get... If I get a beach club bill, I'm like, what? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good to have that, because if you take too much, but... And we're reinvesting in a, in a second app, actually, because apps for other personal trainers are so shit, we're like, fuck it, let's build one. Mm. So we're going to roll that out. I've hired two employees for the first time after five years. They're helping me with the marketing side of things. And now, like, we're just... We're all in the same office. We're in Sydney. We're just starting to come together. And I want to make my app better. I want to get more people on it. And yeah, just getting a... That, that'll be my relaxing time because I'll only be working for about six hours a day. But that's that's really it. And what's around the corner? Don't know. Some exciting things. But generally, just can't get wait, can't wait to get back to the routine that I have. Mm. That's, what, that's what I feel like I have here. And when I was traveling over the summer, I had the exact same feeling. And I need to build my podcast out a bit more because I've been lazy. So what I'll do is I'll invite you to come to Australia for the podcast. And then even to your miss, you're like, babe, I've got to go on the podcast, yeah. you know? So we'll, we'll build that up a little bit. We'll send an invite. Not sure I could afford your business class flights yet. <laughs> but maybe if the new app does well, I'll get you on it. <laughs> That's awesome. I feel like we could talk for like all afternoon. But I know you're a busy man. You've got to prepare for the event this evening. Well, I'll probably go down the beach, get a bit sun. Yeah. That would be my way of preparing for it. Mate, it's honestly, it's been great to meet you. And like you say, we get on very well. I think we're actually a lot more similar than we ever realized. Yeah. And it'll be interesting when I not only get you to Australia, but I'll get you on my podcast and we can start to pull out a lot more of your journey. Yeah, man. Good stuff. And where can everyone find you? James Smith PT, Instagram? Unfortunately, yes. YouTube is... Uh, James Smith PT. <laughs> it's annoying. I've, with that. I've tried everything. I've tried finding James Smith, the James Smith. It's, it's a fucking nightmare. So I'm just going to have to stick with the PT. But yeah, it's all there. And um, yeah, if they type in my name, they should get it. There is a singer called James Smith that I've outworked him now. Yeah, good. Good stuff. 